Does your bike need some love? Shimano Original Replacement Parts are the best way to renew the original function of your Shimano-equipped bike. Available online and at your local retailer. From Red Kite Prayer, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I am Celine Yeager, and with me is my co-host, Patrick Brady. Each week, as always, we take a look at how cycling fits into our lives. How's it fitting <laughs> in your life this week, Patrick? Uh, good. Really good. Uh, you know, I did my ride last weekend. I the saw Adele. that. How was it? It was quite arguably, maybe even easily, the best day I've had on the bike this year. Well, I believe that. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> okay. Maybe, maybe the best. Let's go a little bigger. <laughs> the best day I've had on the bike since Dirty Kansas last year. Okay. That's a statement. Now that's a bigger statement. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the friend who I kind of pestered into doing it with me, Christine, um, she's a really strong rider. We've ridden big chunks of grasshoppers together. So mm-hmm. there's something in our pacing and riding style that's uh really solid and cooperative and then there's the fact that she can drop me on any descent known to man she was a pro downhiller back in the day oh cool yeah yeah uh so you know she's got badass tattooed on the back of her neck as she you know you can read as she goes by that's a joke she doesn't actually have that tattooed uh (laughs) but we just we had the best time uh we didn't mind you know stopping to eat to refuel just to catch our breath to say mm-hmm. hi to friends. <laughs> At one point we pulled over to say hi to some folks. And uh, just as that conversation was winding up, uh, Sean Walling of white industries, X of Soulcraft frame building, mm-hmm. Sean comes tearing down Marsh trail. And we were like, Sean, Hey. And so a whole new conversation started oh, in the wake nice. of that one. But the, the remarkable thing is uh, the, the route that I worked out, worked spectacularly well. Christine suggested two minor revisions on the fly and mm-hmm. they were absolutely brilliant. Um, cause as we were in the trails looking at him, she's like, we should turn here and do this instead of that. Mm-hmm. Just two little points. And yeah, it made a real difference. It was, it was dynamite. Just a neat, neat day. I'll circle back to this, uh, in my pace line pick. Okay. Yeah. All right. Stay tuned. Did you hear about Strava pulling down segments in San Francisco that had racist names? You know, I caught and I I look at so much media in general. I don't even know where I saw it. Maybe Instagram. I saw some I saw Mm -hmm. something about that. Maybe it was even on bicycling, for God's sakes. I don't know. But yes, (laughs) I did see um, that there was uh, that happening. And I don't know any other thing about it. I know nothing else, to be honest with you. So. I, I reached out to him to try to ask him if he'd be willing to speak. And I haven't heard anything back. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Maybe next week we'll have him on the show. I'm going to keep yeah, trying. Yeah. So this fellow, Nehemiah Brown, African-American cyclist, uh, active with the Rafa Club in San uh-huh. Francisco. Uh, yeah. He had twice in 2020 emailed Strava and said, you know, hey, there are these racist segments in historically black neighborhoods, particularly Bayview and Visitation Valley. 
And he's like, I don't know. Could you maybe pull these down? They didn't really respond. Uh-huh. And then the the Instagram thing of which you speak, that's when it blew up. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Blackout Tuesday. Everybody uh-huh. posted black. He posted yeah. orange. Um, oh, and, okay. Oh, and, okay. I get yeah. it. Yeah. And he, uh, he pinged him again um, through Instagram this time. And then other people who were following him piled on and that started to go at least semi-viral. And the next time he went back to Strava and went to look for those segments, they were gone. Hmm. So cheers to Strava. Yeah. I mean, they, they arguably they could have acted before that. Oh, took certainly. That, but, but yes, certainly. But yes. Um, I, you know, I, I wondered, because I was honestly just thinking about it on the, my dog walk this morning about, uh, that, particular instance and I, and I and I was trying to wrap my head around like is there somebody that even looks at all that stuff like I have never created a segment so I don't know like if I cre- could create a segment on the hill that I go up behind my house and call it you know that mother effing c word blah, blah, like is there is, is there something that prevents me from doing that is there something uh, I've there never tested filtering? the boundaries uh, yeah, I mean, uh, certainly there are, um, there's code out there where like, if you try to put an expletive in your password for certain right, sites, right, right, it'll just right. pop you out of the system. Right. Um, I don't, I've never pushed the limits of what you can do in Strava in terms of naming a segment. Um, and if you have never created a segment, Celine, you are missing one of the sublime pleasures of life. Are you kidding me? I am not kidding you. I mean, well, you got to understand, I am a guy who's crazy about maps and like, you know, yeah, you know, I, I, I dream about being a cartographer at night sometimes. Oh, Uh, wow. I have a friend who who has done that. Like uh, actually, she was in a ranger school and she actually has. Yeah. And she actually has these framed topographical kind of like the, with the lines and stuff Uh that, that she did. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I just dream about stuff. I, you know, I, that's what writers do, right? We don't really do things. We just dream. No, about the, the, <laughs> right. But this is not, but I'm not, I, this, I can't even fathom creating a segment. Like it's just not, it's not in my DNA. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's a neat thing to do. Um, and it's a fun way to explore, you know, like there, there are loops that nobody else really rides, but I ride. And it's a fun way for me to just kind of keep an eye on how I'm doing. I'll create a loop for some that. ride that I do. No, I get that. Yeah. But um, I mean, there's got to be so many different. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I fully see what you're saying. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting, though, because there's definitely there's one ride. It's actually one of Brian's rides. Um, uh-huh. It's on. It might have been. It's definitely on Hell of Hundred. And I'm not sure what other ride it's on. And there's a, a road called. It might be called Aunt, Aunt Molly, I think. <laughs> and there's a, I, I don't, I won't even say it, but it's in reference to a sexual act that somebody has named <laughs> for the descent on that ride. And every time I see it, I'm like, seriously, dude, like you had like this, you had, and you know, it's gotta be a dude. Like you had to oh, name sure. the segment this. And there's one <laughs> on um, my mountain called Dick Ripper. I can say that on the show, right? <laughs> but it's after like an accident that somebody had on this downhill mountain bike segment He's well, there's intact, a way to remind but, yourself out <laughs> <laughs> but but i was just like 
you know, I, like some of them, I'm the more crass ones. I'm like, that just seems unnecessary. But I, I, I have no idea like how. Like, I, you know, if you were to do some segment and I see it 75 miles an hour, I can flag it. Right. I can be like, ah, oh, that's not. You know. yeah. Or, oh, yeah. Or if it's unsafe, you can flag a segment. <laughs> but I don't know if I saw a racist segment or something particularly gross, if, if there's any way to be to just personally like as in the community to, mm-hmm. to you know, that we could self-police ourselves. I, don't, I have no idea. I, I've never pursued any of this. You know, I, I mean, it, Cheers to Strava aside, I think about the experience of an African-American cyclist who's already in this awfully, awfully white sport going into Strava, looking at a segment he's ridden through, you know, perhaps his own neighborhood and seeing something that you wouldn't say in public to an African-American individual. It's like, what an awful experience that must be for him. You know, Uh, yeah. And, and it he just, can even be a local legend on it now. Wouldn't that mm, be? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it'd be nice if that segment was brought back with a name that pushed back to, pushed back against that. I'd love to see, like, you know, l- low-scale retribution. It's like, here, this is what we're going to do now. Um, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, cheers to him for standing up. I mean, it's one of those things that... This isn't a, a case of me being unaware of white privilege. It's me being unaware because I haven't ridden that segment. Uh, you know, if I had seen anything like that in my own community, I'd like to think I'd have the, the intestinal fortitude to go ahead and speak up about it. I've never seen anything like that. So, you know, I, I can only provide conjecture. Yeah. And, and frankly, there are so many segments on some rides. I don't even read them all. Like, unless I have some bling by it, I, it's just almost ludicrous. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's, yeah. yeah trying to figure out what, what are they trying to refer? Okay. never mind. Doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, how about you? Um, so I had a very nice weekend of riding actually. I, I, on Friday I decided we've had some gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous weather, just like beautiful blue skies with you know fluffy cotton ball clouds and that kind of just just perfect everything popping green so i took a half day on friday and i rode with my friend joan um who runs the velodrome now like she had yeah she had a long ride on tap and i'm like oh sure i didn't realize it was gonna be 70 miles that was maybe a little longer <laughs> than, I, than i knew we were in for but um it was it was really nice it's just been so delightful to ride with uh, some other human beings again it's mm-hmm. really really appreciated that oh, and she's on, an awesome individual let's just be clear about yeah, this yeah, yeah yeah she is she's she is she's a it, it was really great um and then on sunday i uh, got together with like just a couple other people to do a road ride because you know we haven't really been riding on the road with other people and uh dave had put together a really pretty ride that goes down it just goes by all these different rivers and creeks and water and we were probably, it was going to be about 60 miles, and we were probably about 25 or so in, and going up this long, lovely climb that crests along a bit of a flat and then just sweeps down the hill. And it was mostly freshly paved, so it was really, really sweet. Um, I got to the top, you know, a little bit ahead of the others, and started descending, and I, I stopped before the bottom to check out a family of fox that was actually off to the left, which I've never seen kits before actually in the wild. Like there were these baby fox. Yeah. How could you not stop for that? Oh my, it was adorable. They were all in this field. <laughs> I can imagine. 
And, uh, you know, then Dave comes crusting down and Christine, my friend, who is the ranger who went to ranger school, but she does. She does uh-huh. other things now, but she was with us and her husband was behind and yeah, he was he was pretty he was tired and he was lagging a bit. Um, so we're talking about the foxes and chit chatting and what a beautiful day. And Dave's phone rings, which is never good. Right. Because it's Keith. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like yeah. you don't want to be on a ride with somebody and they're calling you because that's that's not good right yeah um yeah so you know he i hear you know dave picks up and then you hear all the other stuff that you don't want to hear like oh my god like are you okay you know like (laughs) gasping all the telltale signs that things are not okay and uh it turns out he he was okay but he he broke his bike like that's all we kind of left with the message so we rode back up the hill and he was standing there with his handlebars facing one way and his front wheel facing the other way Mm, also not good yeah as indicators go yeah never 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 really good and his stem was very cracked it had not sheared but it was not it was not functional. There was no way that we could save it. There was no way that he was going to be riding anywhere back. Um, you know, so we called a friend. We were luckily we were in cell service. I mean, that because some of those areas <laughs> are pretty are pretty dead. Right. Call the friend. But, you know, while we were waiting, we all got to chit chatting like because uh, my other friend, Dave, who was also with us, rides old stuff. You know, he's mm-hmm. got this very old Pegoretti with like. Maybe a little rust on it, you know, like in some other, like, like it's, yeah. And just, we started thinking like, cause it, I would, you know, he's been riding that bike and to look at the stem, it wasn't visible to the outside that that might be, a, it might be problematic. Right. So <laughs> we, we started talking like, how do one know when stuff is not okay or too old? Cause I mean, let's be clear. That could have been super catastrophic. Like uh-huh. he's a big guy. And if he started going down that hill and that thing, cause all he did, he, he just hit like, um, you know, when they pour the pavement and somebody drives over it and there's like a little bit of a lip, like cause it's still soft. It was yep. that kind of situation. It wasn't even a giant pothole. It was just like a ridge. Um, mm. but doing that at 40 miles an hour, I mean, that would have been, that would have been, I don't even want to think about it. Yeah. Let's not. Okay. Let's Moving not, right let's along. Let's go on. Moving right on. So I thought I would call uh, my longtime friend and uh, Paceline listener, Mark Taylor, who has been a bike builder, a shop owner, a manager, and all around wrench for about 28 years. You know, um, uh, so I call Taylor. We call, we call him by his last name. And I also know he's super into vintage stuff. Like he used to sort of traffic and like use bikes and fix them up and sell them. And I figured if anyone knows, like, how to have a how to like the whys and the hows and the how to prevents it would probably be him. Mm-hmm. So we had a good conversation and I learned some things that, you know, I and it's funny that a friend of mine just posted something on Twitter saying, Hey, I have this two hundred six you know, two thousand six road bike. Is there any reason I should replace it? And I was like, You might just wanna look at some stuff. Because <laughs> you know, like yeah. just to be safe. So it was very timely. But anyway, I'll uh, I'll let Mark tell the rest of that. All right, Taylor. So I'm on the ride on Sunday with our friend Keith. And, um, you know, Keith is, is not a small man, but he's also, you know, a fit rider on a independent fabrication, right? Kind of an older bike. Yeah. But we were, we were rolling along, and thankfully, I had uh, crested this hill 
you know, before, a bit before the group and went down the hill and stopped to look at this family of, uh, that included two baby foxes, which I was super psyched to see. Um, but as I was standing there, I'm like, it's been a while. <laughs> you know? And then uh, Dave rolls down and, he's, and he gets a call from Keith, who's like, I broke my bike. And I'm like, oh, please don't be on the ground somewhere. And we roll back up and he, thank God, he had not yet started really going down because he would have picked up a lot of speed. But he hit just like a little divot in the road. Like, you know, sometimes when they are working on the road and it's still soft, there's like a little indentation kind of thing. It was like one of those and it busted his stem. It's cracked his stem. So his, he, he was trying to turn and the, and the whole, the wheel was not going. It was like a funny bike, you know, like the handlebars are going one way and the wheels going the other way. And right. thankfully he kept it upright and it didn't actually shear. It wasn't like a George Hincapie moment, but, um, but we were like, ooh. And then he's like, well, I, got, I think I got that stem. You know, he didn't even remember when he got the stem, and it wasn't new when he got it. Um, and it just made us all stop and think. And somebody even said, if only you had a podcast where you could talk about these things. <laughs> so I I thought of, of you because I know that you have um, trafficked in likes, lots of used bikes. You ride lots of vintage, quote-unquote, Laroica sort of things. And it's just like... I basically, when I roll out of the garage, I check my tires, the bike rolling, and I go. And, um, you know, it, it never occurs to me. I don't have stuff that's necessarily that old, but I've got a bag of stems in my garage that now I'm like, maybe I should just chuck them. But what should people, you know, like what what's the culprit behind something like that, generally speaking? And what should people look for and be sure of when they're, you know, and they, when they're pulling their bikes, because a lot of people are right now, right? They're pulling bikes out of the garage. They're buying new stuff. They're outfitting it, maybe getting stuff from buddies, you know, to get their bikes rolling again. Like, what What are some of the lessons here? Yeah, definitely um, that, that sim has seen quite a few miles and um, has had, you know, countless miles of sweat poured on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and. Oftentimes, that is the biggest culprit uh, of a bicycle component failure. Um, the the sweat. salt in our sweat is very, very corrosive from anyone, and much more so from certain certain riders. Um, and it can really wreak havoc on uh, all components. You know, steel has a reputation as you know for rusting. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's actually all materials can really uh, degrade over time and get corroded, whether it's steel, aluminum, even carbon fiber. If the uh, the protective clear coat is damaged, it can also get get damaged from from salt and um, you know that sort of thing corroding it as well. Huh. Uh, yeah. Okay, so, that, so that what are you saying we should <laughs> is um when I first talked to you about this, you had said this is a good reason to use soap and water on your bicycle. Um is is washing your, your bike I always think like just keep the drive chain clean and I'm good. But now I'm thinking that's not necessarily true. Sure, yeah, the the whole bike needs some TLC. Um you know Ideally, once a week, um, but more real, more realistically, you know, we'll say once a month. Right. Um, whether it's in the summer when we're sweating on our bikes, or in the winter 
especially in like the Northeast and, and snow states mm-hmm. where we're riding in lots of salt. So the salt's coming up from the ground instead of down from the rider. Or uh, if you're in the trainer, right? Because the only time oh, I actually sweat on my yeah. bike is, the tra- is when I'm on my rollers. Right. Yeah, the rollers or trainer, because mm-hmm. um, there's no, there's not even a breeze, but everything's right. just pouring directly into the bike, and generally it'll run down the frame uh, into your water bottle mounts uh, oh. into the bottom bracket. So mm-hmm. things that you don't see are all the corrosion in the, the lowest portion of the frame down at the bottom bracket area. Uh, as a mechanic, we remove bottom brackets all the time and find. Um, you know, horror scenes inside that bottom bracket <laughs> of just uh, lots of white powdery residue, which is, it used to be part of the frame. It's just corrosion and internal damage of the frame. Uh, bottom bracket uh, bearings being completely destroyed also from that corrosion that's internal. You, you can't see it as a rider. Right. Uh, it's all It's always going on inside the bike. Um, it's actually a pretty high failure point on frames as well because all the sweat kind of pulls at that bottom bracket area, uh, as well as like energy drinks. Every time you put your um, mm. your bottle back in the cage, it sort mm-hmm. of splashes on the bike and runs down and, and kind of gunks stuff up. Um, even internally routed cables, uh, you know, they, they make that area something we don't look at as often until, well, it stops working. And then when we get in there and start digging around, getting the cables out, there's oftentimes you know, a sugary uh, mess <laughs> inside the frame huh. uh, that, that really sticks out the cables and, and does some internal damage. Is there a replacement? I mean, say, like, I- I'm not sure that even if I had Keith's bike and, and washed it more than I do, which, as you know, is rarely. <laughs> um, but if I washed it somewhat, I'm not sure I would have seen this coming you know i mean is there a certain point at which you should just replace stuff um so i actually talked to someone from one of the most reputable uh component actually on frame manufacturers with Mm -hmm. you know they've got probably 50 years experience in in all these things Mm -hmm. and we talked about time frame of components and the manufacturers really don't put any sort of time frame because it's so subjective depending on how the bike's ridden, where it's right, ridden, right, things like right. that. So I'm certain that uh, on our friend Pete's bike, you know, that morning of the ride and probably a hundred rides previous, there was, you know, a buildup around the hardware, either rust on the, the hardware or that white powdery kind of residue I was talking about before was mm-hmm. developing over time. It, didn't just break. It had already, it had probably begun to fail many, many rides ago. Right. Um, so had that bike been taken down to the bare frame, you know, on a yearly or every other year and mm-hmm. the headset and fork and all those things were removed and the seat post, in fact, cause you know, we've, we've all encountered stuck seat posts. <laughs> all of those things can be prevented mm-hmm. by a yearly, overhaul. Um, and at that time, that's when, you know, a very thorough, uh, visual inspection happens. There's, there's nothing better than, you know, really getting in there, cleaning a bike and searching for any sort of failure mm-hmm. or stress points. 
um, lightweight, high-end components, which is pretty much everything nowadays, yeah. um, they're, you know, they're not necessarily built to be extremely durable, although they're they're shockingly durable at times, but they, yeah. they do need to be inspected, and ultimately all things can wear out and fail. Um, it's the idea is to catch it before it becomes catastrophic. So I, I hear you saying that in, that taking my bike, if if I don't do such things myself, which I don't, um, taking my bike to someone like yourself or my friendly neighborhood mechanic once a year for a tune-up, like a thorough strip it down, give it a look at yeah, like a whole, what we consider an overhaul. So at that yeah. point, the bike goes into all of the smallest parts it can be taken down to, yeah. uh, completely cleaned. Um, re-lubricated and reassembled. Uh, if you were to do that on a yearly basis, chances are greatly reduced for any sort of catastrophic failure. Um, and it could save you not only the misery of getting stuck in the middle of a ride, but serious bodily harm. Um, yes. Or, yeah. you know, or worse. It, it could yeah. be, it could yeah. be no, the worst really, thing. really bad. He, that happened on Sunday and, you know, our ride got delayed and he had to call our other friend Jason to get picked up. Sure. Um, but had he, I mean, it would have been terrible because yeah, that was a really long path. Yeah, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, that. Yes. It would have got bad. Yes, a, a, a win, a, you know, a classic. But um, yeah, Exactly. Yeah. Is there anything else, Taylor, that you, that you think that is important to uh, people to know about these kind of things as they're, uh, you know, just going about their way with their older bikes or older pieces or pulling out bikes from the garage? Sure. Um, you know, right now we're in a in a kind of crazy time where uh, your local bike shop may not have a bicycle to sell you if you want to purchase one. So, yeah. um, you know, manufacturers don't have bikes and, and shops don't have bikes right now. So a lot of folks are or digging out older bikes or getting bikes from friends or relatives or, you know, through uh, secondhand channels, marketplace, Craigslist, so on. Um, and there's certainly some deals to be had by the educated buyer. And then there's also some pretty sketchy situations where, you know, folks are, are spending their, their hard-earned money on a, a used piece of equipment that's, um, you know, ultimately unsafe, um, or is going to be a massive investment to even mm-hmm. get it up to a safe level. So mm-hmm. uh, it's really tricky. You know, some of the things you want to look for, um, you know, if you have a, a bicycle in front of you that you're, you're thinking on purchasing, absolutely take it for a test ride. If, if the seller won't allow you to test ride a bike in person, move on. Um, inspect, you know, visually inspect the bike, grab the, Stand in front of the bike and grab the front wheel with your knees and try and turn the handlebars and see if anything creaks or spins or things like that. And um, take a set of Allen keys with you if you're looking at a bike in person and try and remove the seat first, see if it's stuck. Uh, look for those you know, telltale signs of, you know, bubbling paint where there might be corrosion underneath or that, you know, that white powdery kind of residue yep. around aluminum components. Um, if the handlebar tape is, you know, it looks like it's got 10 seasons on it, oftentimes there's a huge salt buildup under that handlebar tape that can also be damaging 
you know, lightweight aluminum handlebars. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, spokes can seize. There's mm-hmm. lots of little contact points that can be very costly to, you know, to either repair on their own if you have that skill or when you take it to your local shop, they're going to tell you, hey, you know, your $200 investment is going to take $700 to repair. Right. In the worst case, at the end of that whole process, you end up with a bike that's worth $300 if that. So you really kind of got to weigh the, the benefit of buying a secondhand bike um, if it's worthwhile or if you should just, you know, be patient and wait till the supply chain starts moving again and, and support mm-hmm. your local mm-hmm. shop. It's kind of tricky. It's not as easy as it seems to just go buy a used bike. Um, I would say yeah. that the the most the most problematic used bikes are uh, full suspension mountain bikes. You know, there's there's lots of things that you can't see that's going on internally with the suspension. You could have someone who rode incredibly hard mm-hmm. and but didn't crash, and also kept their bike very clean. So it looks spotless, doesn't have any scratches or anything, but that same rider, you know, wasn't, wasn't falling down and scratching the bike up, but they were doing, you know, 20 foot gaps and drops and stuff right. where, you know, internally the suspension is just worn out and the pivots and things like that. I mean, you could rack up a thousand dollars. I was going to say that. Realistically a thousand dollars, you know, and that's, yeah. it's crazy. Um, you know, full suspension, it's kind of like a laptop. It's its outdated pretty much after five years. Yeah, um, yeah. Or unserviceable. Right? Yeah. you got to be very wary of what you're buying. The the best deal there really with the, the earlier technology bikes, you know, early 90s, rigid mountain bikes are pretty safe. Mm. And uh, same with the road bikes. You know, if you if you go back in time to the, um, the down-tube shifter bikes, they're... You know, they're a little <laughs> less convenient, but they were also no less fun to ride, and they're far lower maintenance. You just hop on and go. Um, so there are which some deals to be had. Which makes me, because I have to ask, because I know that you are a listener and you heard the LaRoyka uh, episode and sure. comment, commented on it. How how um, how expensive would your LaRoyka setup be, and what would it be? We'll end on that. Oh, uh, my daily rider would be a pretty pretty nice showstopper for one of the Loroco rides, and it's um, my total investment in that bicycle that's from 1973. I think I've got less than $250 into it. Wow. Uh, and it's um, incredibly reliable. I would, you know, not only would I do like one of those rides, but I'd also do you know, an unpaved or any of the gravel events. Uh, it also has seen quite a bit of single track. Um, Tell me the model of that. Uh, that's a, a Schwinn World Voyager from 1973. So it's the first year that Dura-Ace came out. It's a full mm-hmm. Dura-Ace equipped bicycle. Wow. Uh, it's also the first year that Schwinn did a bike made in Japan by Panasonic. So it's got a bunch of cool stuff going on, and uh, I actually was able to get the matching bike in a smaller size for my wife. So we've got matching bikes. It's pretty awesome. Well, that is lovely. 
And yeah. when all of when all of this lifts, maybe we'll be able to go on a rise with our absolutely matching bikes. Um, thank you, uh, Taylor, for your time. And oh, of course, yeah, be well. All right, thanks. We'll, we'll see you out there on the road. Take care. All right, take care. All right. So, what do you think? Well, aside from the fact that he's a, a very smart, experienced, and astute dude, uh, he's <laughs> spot on the money. So there's that. Um, I mean, yeah, my time in shops, I saw so many things. Uh, and, you know, he was talking about like uh, sweat dripping down the frame to the bottom bracket. Yeah. I've right. seen plenty of occasions where it never made it that far, where on a, on a steel frame, it would drip onto the top tube. And, uh, back when we had top tube mounted brake cables, you know, at the 12 o'clock position and yeah, there yeah. were the little brazons along the top where those would rust out and like sometimes even break off. People would ride so much like that. And yes, trainers way worse than being out yeah, where you've yeah, actually yeah. got the wind. Cause you're to actually just stuff. dripping sweat right on it and it's not going. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, one of the big things that we face now is that. As you as you guys discussed, things are made to be light in a way mm-hmm. they were not in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when bikes went from twenty three pounds to sixteen pounds to fourteen pounds, we lost durability in that. Mm-hmm. We absolutely did, and it's also fair to observe that one doesn't have to take poor care of their bike for things to go wrong. Mm-hmm. I still don't know how it happened, but I had a carbon fiber frame where somehow, some way, enough of that clear coat was ground off the seat post. And I mean, mm-hmm. I honestly don't ever remember moving the seat post on that bike. I, after the first fitting, I set it and left it. And it wasn't until, I don't know, two years later when I went to pull the seat post out for some reason and it wouldn't come. The, the clear coat had come off of it and it had bonded uh, because of the sweat, uh, mm-hmm. it had bonded to the carbon fiber uh, inside the seat collar. And that frame got uh, uh, got warranted uh, for that reason. We couldn't get hmm. the seat post out, had to destroy it. Yeah. So there's a lot of things uh, to be aware of. I think the big takeaway for listeners is that unless you like working on your bike and working on it a lot and washing it, regularly it's best just to take it into a mechanic periodically and have them look it over totally that was my takeaway too just have like just have that overhaul done because it's so worth it just because even if you even if you moderately or decently take care of it unless you're pulling it all apart there's like some of that stuff he was talking about you're not gonna see it yeah something that can be uh, fun and perhaps a little bit of educational and perhaps, you know, kind of help instill people a sense of, Oh, I really do need to take this seriously is to try to find on YouTube, some video of team mechanics, cleaning riders, bikes after mm. big, uh, big stage races. Cause that's mm-hmm. when they're doing it outside, you know, the classics, mm-hmm. they end up going back to the service course and wash them there. But on a, on a grand tour, they're washing bikes in the parking lot after that day's stage mm-hmm. and to see what they're doing. They've got the brushes out and the kerosene and natural bristle brushes. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that. Yep. Uh, but you know, I mean, it is not an environmentally lovely system. They have using kerosene 
But <laughs> right. when you look at the effort they go to in terms of cleaning the bikes each day, right, scrubbing the bar tape, you know, sudsing up the frames, uh, you know, actually brushing down the chain. Those bikes are really something. And I remember Andy Hampton saying once years ago, I believe it was George Noyes, the one of the mechanics for the 7-Eleven team. Those guys were so on the money with everything that they did to the riders' bikes that if they noticed that the brake pads were worn on the brakes after a mountain mm-hmm. stage, they'd replace them. They then checked the reach to make sure that suddenly the brake pads weren't contacting earlier than they had been. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when they handed the bike to the rider, they'd say, I replaced your brake pads for you. So that they knew that there was something now different on the bike. Right. To give them a heads up about that. Total sense. Makes total sense. Yeah. So just, you know, being a good mechanic requires a lot of different know-how that isn't easily uh, collected in bullet points. Amen to that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, for the record, I mean, I loved working as a mechanic, but I am so glad I don't do it anymore. It's a, it's a fun job, but it is a really, really hard job because you got people really depending on you. Yeah. I thought about that. And that left me think a lot about that (laughs) as a lot of responsibility. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. We're back with the pace line, the podcast on two wheels. Patrick, what do you have? Oh boy. Oh boy. (laughs) Okay. Here we go. I'm not sure what that when it yeah. starts with that, it's going to be good. <laughs> yeah. Well, so for a few weeks, I've been mulling the Lance Armstrong situation. Oh, I'm sure you love to be mulling that. Uh, not really. I don't no. want to give it any thought at all, <laughs> but it's become sort of unavoidable because friends are talking about it. And here we are producing this podcast and people are probably wondering what we thought about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I was asking myself, would I watch the two part documentary, you know, if only to see friends talk about what a complicated character he is. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I decided against it. Oh, there's no Mr. way. Mr. High Road. Sorry. No, no. It, I, <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, I'll let, please go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will. <laughs> there's no there there. In Mm. that there's nothing Lance Armstrong is willing to reveal that makes listening to anything he has to say worthwhile. That's the conclusion I've drawn, broadly speaking. I mean, and, you know, in terms of objective data, okay, he hasn't really apologized to the Andreus. He hasn't apologized to the Le Mans. And his ongoing slander of Floyd Landis is just too childish to merit my time. It's like, dude, grow yeah. up. This is not fourth grade. Um, then earlier this week on bicycling, our colleague Joe Lindsay published a piece mm-hmm. saying mm-hmm. it's time to let go of Lance, close mm-hmm. that chapter and accept that we aren't really going to get the closure that we'd like. Yep. I, you know, I worked with Joe a lot of years ago at Bicycle Guide. I love that guy. And he's always been just a really terrific columnist. And this would be part and parcel of why he is so good. I'm just so glad he wrote it. I came to a very similar conclusion, actually, a couple of years ago. Uh, probably closer to six years ago now. Mm-hmm. I, had a, I had a phone conversation with Lance. And I was trying to convince him, dude, just sit down with them and talk. Tell them. 
you you don't understand how much this could help. You don't understand how much this could change things. You don't understand how public perception of you would improve if you mm-hmm. simply did this. Uh, and he's like, you don't get it. And I think that was his way of saying that, you know, with Weisel and Ockowitz and everybody else, uh, that he would be burning too many homes uh, for his own liking. That was, that was my guess. Uh, but of course he wouldn't level with me about that. Um, rather than spell that out for RKP readers at the time, you know, I made a different decision and I just chose to stop writing about pro cycling entirely. Mm-hmm. I, I gave it up. Uh, this is not a Lenten thing, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but to explain how I got to that place, I have to go back a little bit in time. When I first started covering bike racing back in the 1990s, one of the realities of the sport that I had to learn was that in Europe, bike racing is a poor man's sport. It's not a bunch of college kids. Okay. Yep. yep. It's a sport of farm boys and factory workers or future farm boys and factory workers. Bike racing is what you did if you weren't smart enough for college, weren't, weren't a football player, uh, and didn't want to wind up working on the family farm or in some factory. It helped to frame for me the desperation behind doping. Why riders were willing to risk suspension or even expulsion from the sport. It, it was simple because the risk was worth it. And the alternative, working in a factory, was worse than the punishment of being cast out as a doper. Mm-hmm. The desperation that fueled doping was really sharply contrasted when you consider the college boys from the U S you know, bike racing in the U S then, uh, and and certainly now it's been a vehicle for self-discovery, self-actualization, you know, and that's fundamentally a pursuit of privilege. And to me, it helps to explain why American riders were so vehemently anti-doping to use anything exogenous other than food and water was really anathema to the pursuit. The difference therefore is really stark for everyone who sees the sport as a vehicle to self-discovery. It's an end in itself, but for the European riders, bike racing was only a means to an end. No more. And let's, let's be clear here. You know, it was an opportunity to make more money and to be famous. Those things are kind of awesome. Generally held, right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, But a corollary to this is that most of the growth in the 1990s of what is now USA Cycling came in the collegiate ranks, mm-hmm. college boys. There probably isn't more privileged demographic on the planet than a bunch of white male college students. You know, when we began chasing bike racing, it was a recreation that held the potential of becoming a career if we were good enough. And Let's be honest. When you're 22, it's easy to believe that you might turn out to be good enough. Mm -hmm. Around that time, a little later, I read Paul Kimmage's Rough Ride, in which he detailed all the doping he saw and took part in while racing. Um, This was in the 1980s. And I, even after reading that, I didn't appreciate the depth to which doping penetrated cycling culture. Then... In 1997, just prior to the Festina affair, I had a conversation with a photographer I knew who had shot several years of the tour. 
And he told me stories of seeing riders, Bjarne Reese among them, having to be carried from their bikes because they were so spent at the end of a mountain stage. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Carried, dragged away from bikes at the end of the stage. And then looking fresh as laundered sheets the next morning. <laughs> and I was like, what? No, that can't be. And it was like, seriously, seriously, it, it, lots of doping, very powerful stuff. A year later, the Festina mm-hmm. affair hits in 98, and we all got a deep education at that point in just how pervasive EPO use was in the pro ranks. And for reasons I can't explain, that didn't dull my enthusiasm for racing. Mm-hmm. I was somebody who really did want clean sport. And I figured we would move a step closer toward that goal of clean sport. I believe that people really wanted that. And by people, I mean like everybody concerned with cycling. Now, all that said, when Lance won his first tour, I didn't think he was clean. I didn't think he was clean in 96 when I, when I first met him at the Tour DuPont. Uh, he was not a cyclist who struck me as uh, willing to stand on principle. He <laughs> wanted to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I made my peace with that in that I thought that he was part of a machine that was never going to be brought down. Mm-hmm. But I still, as counterintuitive as, as this might sound, I still thought that the sport would gradually keep moving toward being clean. Mm-hmm. as a whole but then floyd burned down lance's house and the whole tailwinds operation and honestly a goodly chunk of some other teams considering the diaspora of riders from what had been the postal service and discovery channel teams in the wake of the reason decision <laughs> for four or five minutes anyway i thought this <laughs> would finally change uh yeah about that so here we are eight years later, and I can say, I, I hate to use the word confidence, but yeah, I'm confident that all that has happened is that doping has gone to ground more than it ever was before. The methods remain just ahead of what WADA can perceive. And that's not even the problem that changed things for me. What killed my love of pro cycling was the disconnect between what I could report on reliably, factually, and what I knew was taking place, but honestly couldn't prove. And then the ire of fans who, you know, became irate when a Mm -hmm. popular rider got popped for doping. The backlash that I experienced again and again, and maybe this is a lesson just not to read the comments. Uh, mm-hmm. or, or the emails, uh, <laughs> or the conversations on rides. Okay. So maybe it wasn't so easy to escape, but the backlash I experienced again and again led me to take a hard look at the responsibility. And this is my own personal take on what my responsibility is as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I felt like I've got a responsibility to my readers. And if I can't hold up this race, as an example of what it is they want to see in terms of people pursuing clean sport and testing the limits of what uh, a a non-drugged human being can manage, I I can't report on cycling if that's what they want to see. Sure, I could report on 
you know, what happened at Dirty Kansas or any of the grasshoppers. But reporting on the Pro Tour was something I just had to let go of in its entirety. And maybe even the saddest part of this is that I don't even miss it. Hmm. To, to give you like a little scrap of what I'm talking about, there was a capper for me in this process, something that I just could not let go of. There was, a, I believe he was a Welsh writer, but writer from the UK, nonetheless, Jonathan Tiernan Locke. And uh, John Wilcoxon had written a profile of Tiernan Locke uh, for us. And it fell outside of what I wanted him to be doing for RKP. I had asked him mm-hmm. to be doing historic pieces, not your profile of the hot new up and comer. Mm-hmm. And that was just the thing. Months before he got popped for doping, he was touted as the next hot English speaking writer. Then he tested positive. And again, that was not exactly the moment for me, but I realized that as much as I love Jonathan Vauder's garment sponsored team and all the seeming dedication to clean sport of so many American writers, it also seemed apparent to me that they were showing up to a knife fight with flowers. (laughs) So faced with an audience that wants to cheer on clean writers and a sport that has no intention of cleaning up, you know, and a governing body that is whitewashing at every turn. I came to the only conclusion that I could, I just stopped covering pro cycling period. The divide was just too great for me to continue to try to present pro road racing as something, I don't know, other than a circus. <sighs> so a piece of this owes to the way that oxygen vector dopening, you know, drugs like EPO, didn't come with any self-imposed limits the way anabolic steroids and stimulants did. You know, back in the 1980s up to, I don't know, 87, 88, nobody's really sure when EPO started. But prior to the arrival of oxygen vector drugs, all those drugs had kind of self-imposed limits. You couldn't take amphetamines day after day after day after day after day. Um, And anabolic steroids, you know, you do that too much, you're going to bulk up and you can't climb. So there were limits to how much you could use those drugs. But with oxygen vector doping, so far as we have records for, it seems like more is always better. You know, the, the, until your blood turns to tar. Well, okay. See, now there's an interesting one. Okay. The, the conventional wisdom is that Bert Osterbosch, uh, the Dutch writer died of uh, his blood stopping, uh, you know, his blood becoming too thick and him having a heart attack in his sleep back in 1991. There's actually nothing from his autopsy that suggests that EPO killed him. Hmm. It's not even certain that he was on EPO. Mark Johnson in his book, uh, Spitting in the Soup, breaks mm-hmm. down all the various, uh, he, he calls it received wisdom about the dangers of EPO. And based on his research into it, there's nothing to suggest that EPO is actually dangerous. So you didn't That's, need to get up at 3 a.m. and do jumping jacks to keep from like all the stuff that the writers no, would start to do. No, that's kissing the crucifix and wearing the number 13 upside down. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just as just as necessary and helpful as both those things. So, yeah, I look at oxygen vector doping and it's like, that's not going to stop happening. That's not going to go away. And 
you know, worse, there's, there's nothing about that form of doping that, uh, that encourages the rider or steers the rider into some amount of self-restraint because really more is better. Absolutely. You know, uh, Bjarni Reese was Mr. 61 for a while, 61% hematocrit. Yeah. Well, until they started testing that. Right. And then you've got the, right. but, but the, the, I think what's interesting there is, um, and I know Vodders brings this up is that it's not, when you say it's an equalizer, that's not quite fair because oh, no. there are a lot of people who would never get to 50 period. Right. But like, like there's just different responders. So it might yeah. give somebody a giant jump and somebody else only like a 4% jump. So it's, it's right. It's a, and it's been theorized yeah. that Armstrong was a really first rate responder. One would think so. I mean, just mm-hmm. based on what you saw. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, the saddest part, of all of this is, and it's con- to me, it's confirmation that the sport really hasn't cleaned up at all is the departure of Taylor Finney and Peter Stetna from the pro tour. Those guys were two of the most talented Americans of their generation. And considering what they were able to accomplish before hitting the big time, I mean, you know, Taylor Finney, what a world record, um, an amateur Perry Roubaix, or was it the U23 Perry Roubaix, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, Stetna, you know, some stars and bars and that kid uh, coming from the likes of the Stetna brothers, uh, he was made to do things and to see them both leave the pro tour without any really big wins. The only thing I can see that really stood in their way was a whole lot of other guys going way faster. And it wasn't for lack of talent or lack of Mm -hmm. hard work on their part. Uh, You know, so I, I really, for me, Lance can talk and it's just more words until somebody says, Oh my gosh, he apologized to Betsy or, Oh my gosh, he broke bread with Floyd. Nothing that guy has to say is of any interest to me. It's just, it's really a waste of my time and energy. Um, I wish it were otherwise. He still goes down as the most enjoyable, fun interview I ever did in my life. Uh, It was a lively conversation. Absolutely. But until that guy becomes a little more self-aware and a little more empathetic, nah, I'm out. You're asking for qualities that he doesn't have, though. Like, I mean, he's I get that, <laughs> you know, he's had a, he's had a lot of therapy and that shows, you know, I mean, it it, it certainly does show, um, mm-hmm. but it hasn't. I think that I think my personal opinion, my 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 very personal opinion is that what the therapy has allowed him to do is to not spend every day of his life wishing he had never launched the comeback. <laughs> right, because, right. Because there's no limited achievement from that. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, and to somehow spin that in his head is a good thing. Like, I think the therapy has allowed him that. Um, and he's he's always been, you know, the the one thing that I will say is about Lance is I interviewed him right before. He won again, like right, like right when he was reading for the first tour after cancer, 1999. (laughs) And, you know, he was 25 years old or whatever at the time. 
And it, he was not very good in interviews back then. He got media training. You could see when it happened. He got much, much better. You could see it. Yep. Um, but what stuck out to me is he was he was definitely kind of distracted and not super interested. I was interviewing him for Men's Health. And then as soon as I started talking about cancer, that was real. Like he came alive and he was there was and this is way before Live Strongest, before he won the first. It was be, all of that. Mm-hmm. And he was passionate and and concerned and really wanted to make a difference. And I, it made such an impression on me. Mm-hmm. I was like, that is the most uh, that is that is the authentic person. And that authentic person is still there. Um, you yeah. know, and that's not like people are not black and white, you know, and, and that's that's mm-hmm. not to say that that other sociopath isn't in there, too. And I think that he does have a lot of that. You know, there's. You're not going to change him. He's not going to like see the light on Floyd or, or really, you know, like I think maybe intellectually he knows that he should try to do the right thing with Betsy. But he's like, it's he's that's just not going to happen. He is what he is. But you're mm-hmm. right. You're not you're not like that. I watched both. I watched both of it. I learned nothing. I learned zero. <laughs> um, it was entertaining in its own way, you know, like like sweet white wine like you drink it and you finish the box and you're kind of sorry you did but <laughs> and you're not going to tell your friends oh wait no <laughs> but but that that's really about it yeah. It, yeah you didn't there was nothing to be learned yeah and you know to your point about him and cancer uh you know, I bear Lance no malice and I really do wish that he would go and devote himself to in whatever way to the cause of cancer. It's that's when you have a real person. He's empathetic. He's engaged. Yeah. He listens. And that is an opportunity where he can do real good in the world where oh, totally, totally to the degree that he might ever redeem himself in you know, people's eyes, people who are still kind of suspect of him to the degree that he may ever redeem himself. There's the opportunity. Go help people. Go help people facing a mortal concern. Not take $30,000 from people to ride with you in Spain. Mm, Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like I, I am just going to be straight up. Like I, and I, this, this is, this is me and just all like I love his podcast. I listened to his podcast. I watched all the move podcasts where they uh, the state like, yeah, the move where they broke down the stuff and I laugh and aren't they funny? And isn't he self-effacing? And, I, you know, I perfectly know like what he's done and who he, and yet I'm support. I like that. That is just me being a human being, like being entertained <laughs> by this person who I know is is not the best human being is what it is. Um, and I do think that he still is doing that good that we don't always see in front of the camera. And he is also taking 30 grand from super fans to go ride. And, you know, he's all of that. Yep. So you just take it or you leave it or you do whatever you want with it. But he is not going to change. And Mm -hmm. as long as he is as charming and as long as people like me are hitting click on the downloads, he's not going anywhere. So, you know, people can say I'm part of the problem too, whatever. But, you know, I think that, um, I think Joe's piece is good is because like we can't keep wanting something from him. Like we all have yeah. to make our personal peace with what we decide and then just let it go. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess one of the realities for me was recognizing that the degree to which 
I have been unable to get closure in situations that really matter to me. Uh, personal relationships, you know, usually that's where it's absolutely toughest. I mean, that, that matters. That's something that me wrestling with, you know, should I hold out for that closure? Should I, should I try to make peace? Should I, whatever those intimate personal relationships in my life, that's worth my time. That's worth my consideration to the degree that I'm going to lose sleep over something that's worth it. Lance Armstrong, I shouldn't be devoting my energy to that. No, it was kind of just watching the Tiger King. That's the, which is not, (laughs) that's like drinking another box of white wine. Like it doesn't. (laughs) I watched the Lance stands too. And I'm like, what am I doing? But it's like just brainless brain candy. I mean, that's all it is. Like, it's just nothing, you know, that you're just, it's almost like watching cartoons at night. <laughs> well, I'm going to stick with old old uh, episodes of Looney Tunes that I've been introducing but my boys to. There you to. go. See? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, well done. Yeah. Um, I get you. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how about some baseline picks? Sure. I have a. A kind of a quick one because I'm not done with it yet, but I think it's interesting. I just got a book called The Athlete's Gut, uh, The Inside Science of Digestion, Nutrition and Stomach Distress by Patrick Wilson, uh, Ph.D. R.D. And it's as somebody who has spent a couple decades just having ups and downs with the gut and especially all, you know, super endurance kind of stuff. I've right. always been very um, interested in, in that. And it's 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 not like it's I mean, it's it's not like textbook reading, but it's a deep dive. I mean, a guy is diving <laughs> deep. You are going to learn like how long your colon is, what your colon does, like, all you know, all this stuff, like every single piece. But if, for anyone who does have cramping, uh, you know, like consistently struggles with that kind of stuff. I think it's definitely worth a read because you, you, it gives you a better understanding of what is going on. And anytime you have a better understanding of like actually what is going on, you're more empowered to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does yep. give actionable advice. You know, he gives, you know, factors that influence those things as well as like how to, uh, how to adapt yourself, how to, how to train your gut. You hear that all the time, right? Train your gut, train your gut. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? So it gives you tools to do that. And I just thought it was like a really, again, it's not, um, you know, it's a book all about your gut. <laughs> so that, <laughs> that is what it is. But I think I know from personal experience that when you get to certain intensities or durations on your bike, everything comes to that. I mean, it's your brain is a big part, but your brain and your gut talk to each other. Right. Like there is a gut brain access that's super important. And if your gut is dysfunctional, it's not sending good messages to your brain and vice versa. Right. So if you look at it that way, it's also helping train all of that. Your brain, your central governor, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. A healthy gut might even be the first step before you start going upstairs and working on, you know, self-talk. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, that makes me think back on Dirty Kanza last year. The darkest periods I had that day mm-hmm. were the periods where I'd gone off real food. Yep. Mm. I, I had not, I, I swear to you, I had not even considered that correlation until you were talking about this. 
It's a real thing. That's a, I mean, it's definitely, I, I have, the more I, and it, it, I could go down so many rabbit holes because I'm writing about the endocannabinoid system. And that oh, is, uh-huh. yeah. And that has so much, like we have CB receptors in our gut that talk to the ones in our brain that, re- that when you want to talk about flow states and all that, kind of, like all of that is so intimately connected. We barely understand it yet. There's so much we don't know. We think we know so much. We, we know so little. Uh, we know so little. Um, yeah. But yeah, it has really convinced me that taking like really and it's not just on the bike. It's everything you do around that, too, because your gut flora obviously is something that isn't just important when you're riding down the road or the gravel. Right. Like it needs mm-hmm. to be healthy all the time. Uh yeah, so it, it's I'm going to dig it. I'll, I'll reveal little snippets of things I discover as I discover them. But uh, I just <laughs> wanted to throw it out there because I think that I know a lot of people struggle with with all kinds of gut stuff. And as you just mentioned, it, it's hard to keep yourself in a good place when things are not right uh, internally. Yeah, well, and then the the other sort of corollary to this is uh, my pick. Uh, it's funny that, uh, this should happen. We're both sometimes we do that. I know. Yeah. Uh, so at the ride this past Saturday, I, I made a bunch of, uh, well, prior to the ride, I made a bunch of feed zone portables. I saw you had like some pasta looking ones. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have not made those. What were those? They were angel hair pasta. I used angel hair instead of spaghetti because I thought when I baked the eggs in them, because you bake eggs in them to hold the pasta together, mm-hmm. I thought there'd be a little more surface area to help hold them together better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was, uh, I chopped up some uh, chicken and dooley sausage. They had recommended mm-hmm. bacon, but I already had the, the chicken sausage around and knew it, I wasn't going to have it much longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I chopped that up instead and then topped it with, uh, Parmesan cheese Two, I was supposed to put basil in there, but the two grocery stores I went to were both out of basil. I, I mean, is it, it would have just brightened it up, but that's, yeah, that's a flavor palette thing. Doesn't run on everything. <laughs> yeah, I guess that, and, you know, basil and toilet paper. Okay. Yeah. I'll come back in six months. Uh, so the the book in question is Feed Zone Portables by Alan mm-hmm. Lim and oh, Bijou yeah. Thomas. I have that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's funny because ostensibly it's a cookbook. Mm-hmm. But in fact, it's much more than that because mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. it's a treatise on what training Grand Tour riders has taught Alan Lim and Bijou about how to hydrate and fuel on the bike when a rider is going four to six hours a day for three weeks. Mm-hmm. Which dovetails very nicely with the book you're reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, yes, it does. And the great takeaway for me about Feed Zone Portables is if it works for these guys, the Peter Stettinas and Taylor Finneys and all these other folks who Lim has worked with, if it works for them, it's going to work for you. And yep. what I especially love about the book is that it doesn't just stop with more different recipes than I've been able to try. Uh, oh, the other thing that I made aside from the spaghetti were the, uh, apple cinnamon rice. They're not really balls. They're sort of puck shaped because you flatten yeah, them. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Those things. That's awesome sauce. So one, one kind of savory, one kind of one sweet. sweet. So that I go. always, yeah. Something relative to my mood. Uh, 
But yeah, I mean, it teaches you what products to use to create the portables, what mm-hmm. a serving size should be, everything right down to how to fold the foil, how to cut the foil, yeah, the, the size of the foil, and how yeah. to fold it to store them. Um, I'm still working on my folding technique, let me just admit. <laughs> Uh, but none of them exploded. I can say none of them exploded. Uh, so yeah, last Friday I, I made the, those two different batches mm-hmm. on the, in the course of the ride, I did supplement with one goo there. Mm-hmm. Uh, color me, uh, cola yeah, me cola happy. You talked about last yep. week. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then one thing of the, uh, scratch shoes, the, uh, uh, green tea, matcha and lemon. Oh, sweet. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that was my only deviation where it's like, no, I, I need something a little sweeter this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the rest of the time I did the feed zone portables, nine of them over the course of the day, which I think really only adds up to about 900 calories. Right. Right. So I was probably shy on my calorie count for what I should have taken in over the course of the day. What'd you uh, burn? About 5,000. Yeah, it's a little low. I mean, at the, at the. At the low end, you'd want to burn, you, you, you wanted to bump that up to like a quarter of that, you know, probably like 30% is a good rule. Trying to like hit 30, put back mm-hmm. 30% of what you've burned, you know, yeah. is, is a good barometer. If you can do more than that and stomach it, that's great. But you know, that like, that's a good, it's a good yeah. safe place to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ideally, I mean, at least 2000 calories. I just, I kept eating. You know, every time we stopped, I'd make sure to eat something. We never pulled over and I didn't eat anything. And I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, I was worn out. I was ready for that beer. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there was never any darkness. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't getting edgy at the end of the ride or anything like that. Um and I, you know, one of the, one of the indicators to me of that was that when, uh, Christine did suggest two variations in the course, I was, you know, it centered enough, happy enough, upbeat enough, able to listen well enough that I could think critically about what she was saying. And just immediately without giving it a lot of thought, go, no, you're, you're right. We should do that. Yeah. Let's do it. Cool. Yeah. So it's a fantastic book. I know I've recommended it once before, but. I, the more I dive into that book, the more I love it, which is maybe the best compliment I can give it. I like all his books. I like his books because they tell stories too. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, he's, he's a good, he presents the information very well. I mean, the original feeds on is a classic, right? Um, and the one he wrote on, I can't remember what it's called, but it's been essentially like the importance of eating together. You know, so basically a more of a the feeds on table. I think it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I enjoyed that one quite a bit too because I think I there's a there's he's a very smart man and and yeah you know ahead of ahead of himself in many ways ahead of ahead of people. So yeah, yeah. A few years ago, I went to this kind of scratch camp where they rounded up uh, a bunch of journalists, and the presentation that he gave, you know, this. PowerPoint thing about his history in the sport, you know, where he came from, his Chinese parents' work ethic and what that gave to him Mm -hmm. and his father's cancer and, you know, his doctoral work and his work with, you know, elite athletes and then mixing the first batches of scratch in his apartment and the trouble they had to go to to wipe down the apartment when he was moving out so that he'd actually get his deposit back and all (laughs) 
all this stuff. Bill Triage, when they were starting scratch, three guys, Ian McGregor, Alan, I forget who the third was, who was, you know, one of the, the stakeholders, so to speak, shareholder. They would sit down with all their bills and know they only had so much money to work with. And they'd go, well, which bill needs to be paid first? And they would simply order the bills according yeah. to what, what the due date was. That's real. And just everything about it, the notes I have from that, just three incredibly long Microsoft Word documents of all the notes that I took while I was there. I'm not a great note taker unless somebody's pretty clear about their speaking and, and the flow of what they have to share. These notes that I have, I should just publish them as is. They are a straight up lecture, entirely readable, like a whole article right there as is. Uh, but they were voluminous. Uh, and that was more than any other single thing. Spending that time with him was like, my gosh, his clarity of vision. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Really something. Anyway. Okay. Well, kind of a wrap on another episode of the pace line. Sure. Right on. Before we go though, bunny hopping your article. That was awesome. <laughs> I really love the, the, they did a great job with the, with the graph, with the, with the video clips. Yes. The GIFs. So yes. good. Yeah. So good. That really makes bonk. it sing. It's so hard to like, you know, I mean, when you write about stuff like that, unless there's some visual, it's almost, a, it's so yeah. hard to get it. Yeah. Because you can just watch it again and again. You can just watch him like that is what right. it looks like. As long as you don't scroll, it'll just keep happening. You know? Yeah. And that's better than like, you know, a cat barfing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Far better. Far better. <laughs> it's a, it's a deceptively hard skill. Mm, it yeah, is. I, I can back you up there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is right. Like it's mm. a, I'm, I'm better at sort of a level lift of like getting everything off at the same time than mm -hmm. the actual bunny hop. I'm just in the last couple months. I've been getting better at that arcing motion front yeah. wheel up back wheel up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I've only been mountain biking for 20. 30, oh, tell me. Yeah. Yeah. I, Moving right along. <laughs> I do a good crank arm catapult where I just like. Put the crank <clears throat> on something and just like catapult myself over it. <laughs> yeah, I may have done that last Saturday. Uh, I didn't come off the bike, but yeah, I, I did launch myself out of the saddle. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. No, that really is a wrap on another episode of the Pace Line. All righty, everybody. Hey, uh, first up, thanks for listening. Um, and as always, keep those questions coming. You all send great stuff. If you've got an idea, please drop by RKP and put a suggestion in the comments. Don't forget our Paceline kits from Primal. They're up in the RKP store. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes us easier for other listeners to find. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with Celine Yeager. Thanks for listening to The Paceline. <laughs>